This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello, and thank you for joining this episode of Behind the Line, the Super Retriever Series' new podcast. Hey, everybody, I'm your host, David Hamilton, and today we have a great guest with us, a name that is synonymous with excellence in the Super Retriever series. Lyle Steinman is our guest today. Lyle started competing in the SRS in 2006. Didn't take him long to get some wins under his belt, and now he is a seven-time crown champion. Lyle, thanks for joining us on the podcast here today. Well, thanks for having me. So how's it going, man? Been good. The weather, of course, is, uh, it was nice Thursday, 70 degrees, and then Friday went from 70 to 30 and freezing rain, so it's... Uh, been a little, a little tough training some days, to say the least. I can imagine trying to figure out what you're going to do one day as opposed to the next, depending if you need a raincoat or if you're going to go out and do, you know, something in the water or something in the field. So glad you could join us today. Uh, as I said a moment ago, this is our new podcast series. And, and for those of you that are tuning in for the first time, this will be a, a, a podcast where we'll talk to some of the handlers here in the Super Retriever series, uh, both about themselves and about the dogs that they've worked with over the years. So, um, Lyle, I guess we can start with, with your background first and what some of your fellow competitors and fans may not realize is competing with dogs was actually not the first animal you competed with. When you were eight years old, you traveled all across the U S showing cattle. How did you get into that? And what was that experience like? Well, being a uh, five generation farm boy and my mom and dad both showed cattle at the state level and at the, the national level. So I followed in their footsteps, you know, when we weren't farming, we were, uh, you know, in the show barn, you know, rinsing steers, trimming feet, blowing hair, you know, all the supplements and stuff. And I guess at about eight years old, I, I started getting into it and I'd get up at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning and I'd walk about 50, 75 yards to the barn and I'd work 20, 25 show steers all day and then you know feed them at night and start all over again seven days a week so that's kind of where i got into that and started showing steers at, at at various you know county fairs and then the state fair and then 
you know, at the American Royal and the National Western and, and some of the bigger events in the country. I think you've won something like over 300 championships competing at that level. So what what did that teach you about being a competitor and about, you know, working with animals? Well, it was, it was you know, you go to the State Fair at Sedalia and in the Coliseum, Steph and I went to the Coliseum a year ago and, you know, like any stadium, there were unlevel ground or ruts or holes or or any of that and what i would do is at night when nobody was in there the lights were always on of course i'd go in there and i'd study i'd look at the ground and you know you had a steer that was maybe not tall enough you need to put him on a mound or his front feet here and and i was always good at finding the advantages in a show ring um and then a lot of the things i just i would work you know, those show steers to death, you know, uh, they were on mounds. They were to straighten the back legs, the supplements that I learned at that young of age, you know, what, how to peak a steer. Okay. There's so many things and these guys are doing it today that we did, uh, you know, many years ago, but you know, it, it's, it's kind of like a, a great dog or a great thoroughbred or a great show steer is there's only so many good days in a year. And you try and peak them for that event or you circle the calendar and go, hey, we want to be good on the weekends, but we want to be good at a Master National or at a Crown Championship. So that's kind of what I learned at that young age. And then you switched over to competing into dogs, but it was with coon dogs first. And I know you had told me we were chatting a couple of weeks ago and you said that really helped you because with coon dogs, you compete at night and you can't see the dog. So you have to learn to trust yourself and the dog working together as a team. Just talk to us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, I, I started doing that, and my neighbor Kermit Hill, who lived about two or three hundred yards from me, was a older gentleman, and, and he was a class. My classmate Kelly was his uh, his grandfather, and I asked him one time. I said, "You show me how to trap coons." He goes, "Absolutely." So I started trapping coons and was successful at that. And I go, "Okay, I need a little more excitement." And and then a guy by the name of Don Shuttle Senior. and and Don Shuttle Junior. got me into coon hounds and. And Don Jr. was a, a veteran of Vietnam and, and taught me a lot of things about reading dogs at night and and mentored me that way. And, and I mean, I still get chills, you know, thinking about the coon hunts and the world hunts and the night hunts, you know, UKC wise throughout the, the state and, and through the Midwest. And I mean, it, it was a deal where if you can read a dog in the dark, you can read him if you can see. Him. And that's what I was always taught. But it was just an adrenaline rush to 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 run them dogs and braces of four. And I mean, it, it was uh, that basically got my blood pumping, I guess you would say. And and going back to showing against steers, you know, I was eight, nine years old showing against people two and three times my age. So I started, you know, putting that mentality of of toughness or, or ice in your veins, I guess you would say. Uh, when to call a, a tree or when to call a track or strike this dog or strike that dog. So I guess that was the early levels of that and, and, and that fueled the fire. And then, believe it or not, I didn't put that in the bio. I went to a, a horseback pointers and that didn't last real long. I love the pointers, but I hate horses. I hate horses with a passion. Okay. I'd tumble them up or they'd fall on me and I said, okay, I got to do something different. So that's kind of where I went into labs after that. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that. So how did you transition into labs and, and what was it about the labs that made you want to compete, you know, with them after you'd been doing the coon dogs? Well, I just, um, I, I was in St. Joe, Missouri and, and I was, uh, 
working there and I, I started looking for a lab puppy for some reason and, and they said well you need to go go find Sonny Ellison he worked at Quaker Oats and and I finally tracked him down and I said hey I'm looking for a lab puppy he goes well I got some so $150 later uh, Sonny took me under his wing and and uh, showed me my first step I guess you'd say into the retriever world uh, and Sonny mentored me for several years. Uh, Sonny, Sonny was tremendous at teaching the thought process behind dogs running blinds and why they do certain things. And, and that really helped me immensely with, with the thought process of, you know, think like dog. Okay. And, and I think that brings up a point. One of the, the greatest compliments I've probably ever received was from, from Jack's owner. And he said, one day he goes, you understand you're only half human, right? And I go, what does that mean? He goes, you think more dog than you do people. And he says, you can't teach that. You can't coach that. Uh, so that was that was an interesting fact that that I learned that I go, OK, this is my thought process is. Yeah. For our, for our listeners that maybe your fellow competitors or maybe somebody that's just getting into the game. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What do you mean when you say you, you think more like the dog than the human? Well, when you're training or you're running, okay, and and when you compete at the level that we want to compete at is is we literally eat, sleep, and drink with these four-legged animals. And these are professional athletes, okay? These are not, I mean, the, 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 uh, the upper-end dogs, they, they are so well-tuned, so intelligent, so, and, and, like Oz has been in here already this morning in the house and Jordan's been in here and I rotate several dogs through here because watching them go in and out of the house or watching them go lay down on the carpet and, and you're thinking the process and you're thinking like they're thinking, okay, what are they thinking right this minute? So when you go to the field and you go, okay, you've got to, you, when you leave the holding blind, you've got to forget your human thoughts. You have to go, what's in this dog's head? Is he getting in the water? Where's he going to get in at? You know, you see the wheels turning going, OK, he's going to get in. He's going to get in. There you go. Your thought process. But you've got to get basically inside that dog's head and think like that particular animal. Well, yeah, that's really great. That that, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Um, so you started competing, uh, as you said, you learned uh, under your mentor and then you turned pro in 2003. What was behind that decision to say, OK, this is now going to be what I want to do for a living? After Sonny, I, I needed a dog. Because I figured out, I you know, Doc was a wonderful animal. He could run any blind you could set up, but he couldn't mark a hot dog in a phone booth or a snow goose in the bed of your truck, okay? I <laughs> wait, wait, out wait, wait, wait. Did you just say he can't mark a hot dog in a phone booth? Yeah, most of your listeners young enough don't even know what a phone booth is. So I guess I'll use the, uh, you couldn't find a snow goose in the bed of your truck, okay? He couldn't right, mark. Yeah. He could run blinds, but he couldn't, he couldn't mark anything. So I figured out I don't have enough horsepower here. So I made a phone call and and Bill Eckett was the one everybody said, this is who you need to call. So I called Bill and Becky Eckett and that started my next development, my next mentor. Uh, I trained with Becky and I watched Bill and Becky taught me the marking concepts and the thought processes behind another development in my career. Um. So I bought Blitz and I'd go down there and I'd train with Becky and I'd watch the young dogs and I'd watch the old dogs. And 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 Bill uh, passed away several years ago. But before that, 
he, he made the comment, he goes, you paid more attention than I thought you did. I said, yes, sir, I did. And, and Bill taught me that um, everything comes together for a reason. You have to have the animal. You have to have the facilities. You have to have the work ethic. You have to have all these ingredients into that dog. And hopefully you, you can do that. You can develop that dog's career and continue that dog's career. And that's what Bill taught me. You know, the facilities, the tech waters, the channel blinds, the, the nine mounds on the property, going south in the winter for three or four months away from your family and working seven days a week. And, and that was all part of the development. So, you know, it was 2002 and I was starting to put together uh, I was training young dogs, my own dogs. I'd never had any intentions of turning pro. And I'd started running some hunt tests. And, and a couple of people go, hey, would you take my dog to this hunt test? Oh, man, if I'd have known now what I knew then, I should have said no. You know, <laughs> and, and I'd have just stayed amateur. But, you know, my goal was to have 10 dogs, 10 master dogs is what I wanted. And I was going to develop them slowly and, and patient. And I owned them. And I wanted those 10 dogs to be the most powerful 10 dogs in the country. That was my goal. Uh, well, that 10-hole dog trailer turned into an 18-hole gooseneck, which turned into a 20-hole gooseneck, which is now a 24-hole gooseneck. So, yeah, that's where it all started. And it was just, you know, the work ethic. And I guess that's that's what I want most people to know is, is I'm not the best. I wasn't the best. but I would outwork you and figure out a way to make that dog better, no matter what God had given him ability wise. And, and that's the thing, I guess, you know, is, as a trainer, and that's what we are. We're a trainer and a teacher, uh, be a teacher and, in the work ethic. And that's what you've got to have, whether it be in the dog or in yourself, you, you got to give yourself goals to get up every morning and and, and go to work. Does that make sense? You're, you're only yeah. as good as the last time you left the driveway. That's what I was taught. And that's, a, that's an important lesson, I think, for some young handlers out there, right? Is that you're only, as you said, you're only as good as the last time you left the driveway. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, obviously now you're the most decorated handler in SRS, but in the early years, were there struggles? I mean, did you have to learn how to be good or were you kind of always a natural at, at working with these dogs? I was extremely blessed. Okay, I have stood by... I don't know how many lifetimes of flat talent. And then my development from my mentors, I guess you would say, is I, I don't need the best athlete. I just need that dog that will believe in my system and will believe in me when things get crazy or, or hard or whatever. The mental toughness is what I was taught from my mentors, okay, training in the rain, training in the wind. That's what I was taught. So, you know, I was extremely lucky with, with River. River come to me and she was a younger dog and, and uh, Daniel Snitke had her and Daniel just couldn't get the potential out of her. And, and that's how I got her. And, and River and I hit it off um, right off the bat. I mean, it was love at first sight and the things her and I did together. And it, she started the her and Jack changed the super retriever series forever is what they did in the sense of they could go 675 yards or they could go two. they didn't care and and whether you handle on a mark at 600 or you handle on one at three yards you still handle on a mark 
And, and that's what you, you've got to look at as a competitor. It don't matter where you handle. Handles a handle and it cost you 10 points, 12 points minimum. Okay. But, you know, River was a field trial dog slash hunt test dog. Okay. And then Jack was all field trial. So when you bring in a certain dog, you have to go, okay, you're already good at this, but I got to make you better at this game. Or you're a great hunt test dog, but I got to teach you to go 500 yards. So it was a development, I guess you'd say. And, and a lot of it was just luck, you know. I know a lot of our, our, our listeners here, I've seen some of your fellow competitors, you know, say that they're also football fans. And I hate to make this comparison because I know you're a Missouri <laughs> fan in college and a Chiefs fan in the NFL. But is it kind of like Saban and Bilicek where it's like you have a process and you look for the dogs that they need to have that talent, but they need to also fit into Lyle's process, if you will? Oh, I, I would agree. And one of the competitors and, and a follower asked that question, what am I looking for? I don't really know if I can tell you what I'm looking for until I see it. Does that kind of make sense? Um, it's me every time I go in a store. Somebody comes up and asks me, can I help you? And I'm like, nope, I'm just browsing. And then I see a shirt and I'm like, I'm going to buy that shirt. That, that's what it was. And I mean, yeah, I mean, you take this as a professional, probably more comparable to a college, the top end college teams. Okay. We're not going to re, you know, we're not rebuilding, we're reloading. Okay. And it's always the next dog up, the next dog up. And, and you, you've got to, like with our program here, I'm not worried about today or May, okay? I'm worried about three years from now. What dog is going to give me an opportunity to win the crown in two, three, or four years? Which one? And then I'm always looking for that next one. Always be looking wow. for that next dog. Okay, it's like Saban and, and Dabo Sweeney. Those guys are always looking for the next one. Right. And when you quit looking for the next one and you come complacent, then you're, you're done. You've got to look for someone to replace that number eight dog or that number 12 dog. And, and that's that's what you get into kind of here is. Is with some of the restrictions is, is. I've got eight dogs that are five and under that will compete for a crown championship. And two or three of them, nobody's even seen. Wow. So you, you, you're always looking for that next quarterback, that next running back, that next, you know, great athlete. That's the best way to put it. You're always looking for that athlete and it's out there. You just got to find you it. You just got to right. find it. Yeah. And and what, and just because a dog works for me doesn't mean it's going to work for somebody else and vice versa. You know, there's a lot of guys out there that I compete against that, you know, they're looking for a different dog that I'm looking for. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk about some of those athletes. You've won the, as I said earlier, you started competing in the Super Retriever Series in 2006. Since then, you've won the crown seven times, 2007, 2009, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2015 and 2017. Let's kind of go real quickly, year by year. 2007, what do you remember about winning the crown that year? Uh, $55,000 was one of them. Shannon gave me a check for thirty grand in a dog trailer. So, you know, what I remember about that was is the long mark in Oaklawn. I think it was over 600 and some yards in the first series. And I mean, it ate them alive. 
Okay, I think I was in, she took, we took the top eight dogs to the second series and I was in eighth place. Verily made the eighth. And then from then on, you couldn't touch River. I mean, she was untouchable. Uh, Danny Farmer was there with Jack and Jack ended up fourth in that crown that River won. Um, and then I got Jack from John because Danny wasn't going to run the SRS anymore. And uh, so I went to, you know, I had River, I had Ribby, I had Jack, I had Baby Coot at the time in uh, 2008. Um, and I inherited Jack. And oh my, there's so many weird stories about Jack. He, he was a weirdo. Okay. I mean, 99% of your handlers couldn't pass Jack in a junior hunt test. Yeah, you had told me Jack Jack only wants to work when he wants to work, and he only wants to work for certain people, right? Yep. He he yeah, you could open the trailer door and if he jumped out, I could pretty well call every time Jack won a crown or he won a classic event. Because you knew when he came out of the trailer he was all business and it was over. If not, you put him back in the truck and you hoping to open the door again and you got the right dog out. But he was just uh Was he temperamental or is it just that he only wanted to work for certain people? He'd only work for me. And he'd run for John a little bit, but he wouldn't give 100%. He, he'd get, I mean, Jack had more all-age points after I got him than he had before I got him. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. But there were several times that John would be in, you know, winning the Open, winning the Amateur, go the last series, and Jack would go, nah, I don't think so. I'll go this way. And John, that one day, pulled up the driveway to give him back to me. And he goes, and Suzanne goes, tell him, John. Well, if I could find a partner to co-own Jack with, I would, because he just, he just guts me every time at the end. I mean, he was, he, he just had to know when it was coming. Um, and with Jack and, and River and all the great dogs, they had the extra gear that you can't train, you can't coach. It's there or it is not there. And it's hard to explain to someone, but Jack was like a cockroach, okay? And Coot beat Jack 90% of the time in the crown numbers. But, right. but Coot would give one away with one bird. And Jack would always just hang around and hang around. And he'd, he'd start at whatever, 10th, 12th place, and he'd sneak into the top six. And then he'd barely get into the finals. And, and then he'd get you. And that's what I'd see. You know, there's so many times that, that you'd see it, he'd just come back and get you and beat you. And, and just humiliate you is what he would do. He'd go, oh, that's all you got. Uh, but that's what Jack would do. I mean, you just hang around and wait till everybody blows up and then he'd get you. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Best dog you ever worked with. Was it River? Was it Jack? Was it Coot? Was it Indy? Who was it? And why? It was Coot. It was Coot. Really? Yeah. Coot why had so? five. Coot finished third in five crown championships. You and I had talked before. It was kind of like Coot was born at the wrong time, right? Coot was competing he with Jack. Was. Coot was competing um, with other dogs that, that weren't even ones that you were handling. And so, I mean, dude with Steven. So it's like, it kind of just seems like Coot was always right there. But wow. So do you think most people would know that you would say Coot? Or do you think that your competitors would think you'd say River or Jack or Indy or one of those? Mm, I would say the ones, I, I, I would say they would say Coot. I mean, Jack always got the hype. And Jack should have won four, maybe five crowns. He gave away one in 09 when he sneezed 23 times and cost us $23,000 on that that we couldn't see till we watched the video. But no, Coot was always, Coot was always there. I mean, Jack won three, but I don't know how many series I won. 
to put him in a position to win. Does that make sense? There's so many birds that he go, I'm not going to go there. Yeah, you are going to go there. You know, so, I mean, he won three, but we did it together. It wasn't just him. I mean, he would dig me a hole and I'd have to, un, you know, get him out of it. And then he'd, then he'd show up and then he'd make me look like a million dollars. But there's so many birds that, you know, you go back and go, if I don't get this bird in the first series, which is 14, 12 to 14 points, we lose a crown. Yeah. And that's the way it was. But no, Coot was, Coot was the most consistent. Um, he was starting to lose his eyesight. And at the end of his career, he finished two master nationals with one eye. Wow. At 12 and 13. At 12 and 13, uh, the boys were throwing birds one day. And they come in and they go, Coot had just destroyed this test. And I mean, he was getting ready to go to St. Louis. And they go, Law, how good, how good was he? I said, you boys have no idea. But at five, six, and seven, I mean, he was he was killing my truck at 10, 11, 12 years of age. Wow. Every day. Yeah. So, you know, there, there was, he he's, you could always count on him. Yeah. And most generally, he'd do everything you'd ask him to do. Most of our listeners know that you recently lost Indy. Um, is it, and if we can't talk about Indy, that's fine. If you say, I'm not ready to talk about it, I get it. But. If you are comfortable talking about Indy, can you tell us about that relationship that you had competing with Indy as well? Oh, that was a a love affair from day one. Um, John and Suzanne had Indy, like they had Jack. And they say Indy had a little bit of trouble. She backs out a gun once in a while. And I said, okay, why don't you give her to me and I'll fix it and then I'll give her back to you. And I'll tell you how to run her. No law, we want to sell her. I said, okay, I'll take her. So I got Indy and had her a week, and uh, this was after Jack had won three. And John goes, how's it going? I said, it's fine. And he goes, what's your thought? I said, well, you made a mistake. How, well, how do you mean? I said, you know how Jack won three crowns? Yeah, I've had her a week now. John, it's not a matter if she wins one, is how many she'll win. Wow. Yeah. We, like most of my guys, eat, sleep, drink, slept in my bed, traveled with me, um, was starting to run this year the best I'd ever seen her run at nine. Um, had a little bit of a hack or cough in late December. So we cleared it up and it was okay, but you'd still hear a little bit of it. I mean, she's in the office, she's in the back of the seat, truck, you know, rides everywhere. And so we get to Mississippi and I hear a little bit, and I mean, she's training like a million dollars and I'm going, okay. And Jack and I decide we don't need to run her, but we're going to run. Okay. So we go to Georgia and run that SRS. And that was a massacre. I mean, that was four series of the toughest. That was one of the toughest SRSs I've ever seen from beginning to end. And I noticed, you know, she was, I told Steph, she doesn't feel good. Something's wrong. And, and Dr. Buck, I went in there at Natchez and we, we put her on some medicine. I said, I just don't have enough medicine on the truck to kick it. And he goes, okay. And so we get done running that SRS. And I mean, other than Jordan, which you couldn't touch, she was third. And she wasn't breathing hard or nothing. And I said, on the way home, I called Dr. Buck. I said, I need to see you today. He goes, okay. So this was on Monday, March 3rd. Um, 
We go in, we do chest x-rays. We pulled blood a week before, found nothing. I said, okay, doc, I'm telling you, I'm, there's something wrong. So he finally finds an abscess that's under the skin. And he goes, Lyle, I think this is it. And he says, I know you know every bump, bruise. Every one of my guys, I run my hands over them all the time. When I put the collars on, I'm training, whatever. I know every scrape on them. And he goes, Lyle, it's 3.30 Monday afternoon. I said, okay, doc. I said, you know, I still don't have a good feeling about this, right? He goes, yeah, I know that. So he calls about an hour later. He goes, Lyle, it's not cancerous. We're good. I said, we're good, doc. And we was getting ready to go to, I think, to another SR. I think we're going to South Carolina or North Carolina someplace. Grace Court. And I said, well, I don't want to take her halfway across the country. Are we good here? And he goes, absolutely. And so he took her out Monday night about 930. Um, and I got to drive by the clinic to get to the plantation. So about 8.01 on that Tuesday morning, he called. And he was upset. And he was crying. Mm -hmm. And he goes, you were right. And I said, and he goes, we lost her. That quick. So that quick. And I walked in there. And the only thing I regret, there's a lot of things I regret that she wasn't with me. Uh, these are always somebody else's dogs, but these are my kids. And I went in there and she was laying like she had been asleep. And she was cold. And I said, Doc, I got to know. He goes, I know you do. Uh, left lung full right lung half full of cancer. I said, Doc, how does an animal compete at the level that, that we expect and not even breathe hard? With half a lung. With half a lung. What do you say? It goes, heart. All has to do with heart. I said, well, we already knew what she had, but we didn't know it was that big. And he goes, she wanted to run for you. Man. So, I mean, you get, you get in, and at 8.30 that morning, it wasn't a good time to call to say, do you want to train anymore? That's why trainers quit. It hit you that hard that you thought about maybe hanging it up, huh? More than once. More than once. No, at 8.30, I was done. And Jordan, always trying to have someone there to soften the blow. Jack was there when River left me. Mm -hmm. And Coot was there, you know, when Jack left me. You know, and, and Jordan was there at just five. And then I bought a dog named Oz in February. And she's just four years old. And, and um, so she come to the house and, you know, I mess with her a little bit. And, and uh, evidently God needed, thought I needed more... Evidently, God knew that Jordan wasn't going to be enough to stop this pain. So, between Oz and Jordan, um, it's gotten a little better, to say the least. Uh, I had a lot of phone calls, text messages from all. I, I didn't understand. Even, even some of my competitors called crying. You know, sh she impacted the retriever world more than we thought. But one thing that I got was from a little girl from Georgia, Darcy Ray. And it's amazing how a five or six-year-old listens. That's Stephen and Kendra's oldest daughter. 
oldest child of the three. And she walked up and she had a picture and she had drawn, you know, to me and Miss Stephanie. Sorry about Andy. Oh, man, that that just hit you right in the wow. It it uh, yes. And I went over. This is over. I said I got Darcy's address and and it was, you know, she did it on her own. But she walked up and I and she showed it to me. And yeah, that that is and I'm going to frame it, put it in my office. But that's the. Ah, the most uh, comforting message text that I could have gotten. And I needed it at that time with that. Yeah, man, hmm. I, I can only imagine. Um, trying to shift to happier times. Um, <laughs> you're a seven-time crown champion. What about the SRS keeps you coming back? Is it that next generation? Is it Jordan? Is it Oz? Is it, like you said, looking for that dog, you know, three, four, five years from now, and you're going to try to keep winning why why keep coming back to something that you've you've clearly proved that you can win time and time again mm, i still love to train uh when i decide that i don't want to train anymore i'm done because it, as a trainer and a teacher and it doesn't matter whatever profession you are if you get up one morning and that's not what you want to do then it's time to do something else so uh, you know that that's a good question. Right now, I don't I don't like running. I don't like traveling. Um, I'm competing against competitors in some cases half my age, but at least twenty years younger than I. Uh, my eyesight's not as good as it was. My reactions are not as good as they were. Um, that's that's. I don't know. Right now, yes. But, you know, I, I've stated before is that I'm not at the beginning of my career. I'm not in the middle of my career. And I can accept where I'm at, that I know that I'm on the other side rather than the, than the first two. And I'm okay with that. Are you proud um, of what you've accomplished? I've been extremely blessed to stand by these animals. You know, they that's probably the biggest thing is... It, I sometimes don't understand. I told Steph this the other day. I said, I really don't understand what, what sometimes what I've done. And I don't, and I don't think an example of that is like when River won in 07, I come home and, and we get home two days later and I'm training and the phone's ringing and congratulating. And they go, what are you doing? I'm training. You just won a crown championship. Yeah, I won one. You know, it it's one more. Can you win another one? I guess that's the thing is don't 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 be complacent to be to to win one crown championship. How many are you gonna win? Go get another one. You know, um, go get another master national pass. Go get another plate. Go get another Hall of Fame. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Make goals for yourself. What do you want to do? Don't don't listen and Shannon laughs. Uh, of all the film that her and her crews have shot of me, I probably have never watched more than 20 minutes total of all of them. Because if you start watching, then you start believing it. Be hungry. Go get it. Go train. You know, it's uh, one more mark, one more blind. How can I make him better tomorrow or her better tomorrow? Yeah. 
Good advice. Yeah, absolutely. And you're also paying it forward these days. I know last year, Super Retriever Series, the university, the the college competition, SRSU. Uh, tell us why you decided to coach a team in that. Well, had a young man, Cole Scott, in Nebraska, and, and uh, he kept calling Shannon. He really wanted to run, and you know, I had a team, and he couldn't find a team, and and I said, but I'll, I'll I'll do I'll do it. I'll find you somebody to run with you. Well, I had to beg, borrow, and pay my youngest daughter Amanda to run for Cole, and and Stephanie coached him, and I worked with Cole and and Amanda, which ran Nikki, which you know. Uh, Amanda never ran in any event, and I'd kind of forgot till she got there going, well, Dad, this is the first one I ever run. She never ran a junior hunt test or a senior or anything like that. So, I mean, to do as well as they did, they both did a wonderful job running it. So, you know, that's something I, I – it's a wonderful thing that they put together, and, I, and I'm sure it will continue on. There's a lot of excitement, and hopefully this year with, with the uh, – conditions that we're having throughout the country that we get to host it again but no it, that's quite a deal that is a wonderful and and you know someone's got a question or training question or i put my videos on the facebook page just you know they're not very good but you know hopefully they give somebody uh some motivation or something to change but if anybody ever has a question tell them to pick up the phone and call me you know i'll answer anything there isn't any secrets you know training's training just go do it that's really great advice where do you think our sport's headed? By the way, what do you think the future holds? Oh, I think it's going to continue to grow. I, you know, this year was going to be a, a very big year for the, the Super Retriever Series. You know, you had a lot of events and the numbers, you know, the first three events, the numbers have been excellent. You know, we're starting to see uh, some some people come back to it. The amateur group is is becoming so powerful. I mean, I mean, there's so many amateurs that that, oh, my. I mean, these guys, and, and I, you know, I was an amateur once myself, but these guys work a full-time job, come home and train and, and travel and compete. And I mean, I, I, I admire those guys, uh, their work ethic is, and that's it. I mean, that is goes back to everything is it's a work ethic, but I mean, I train all day and I get done and I'm going, okay, I've had enough. And these guys are going out and training, setting up wingers. And I'm going, oh my, you know, uh, I'm very, I'm very proud of those guys that, 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 you know, just keep banging and pounding at it. it it's it's wonderful to see. But you know, no, I, I the numbers were going to be good, and uh, you know, I'm sure we're we're going to continue to to grow. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. And like you said, in this in this difficult and unprecedented time, we'll have to kind of pivot where needed. But I think once it's all you know, we're all back to normal. I think the sport will absolutely continue to grow. Lyle, we're last couple minutes here with you. It's been wonderful. Really enjoyed talking to you. Um, with this new podcast, we're going to end it every time with rapid fire. Same four questions to every handler. Quick questions, quick answers. Uh, and here we go. When I say retriever trials, it's the first dog that comes to mind. Either one you trained or someone else trained. Just when I say retriever trials, who's the dog? Coot. Why? Mm, could do it all. He could have been a field champion. He had the wrong owner. Uh, he finished nine nationals, two with the last two with one eye. Um, always there, willing to train. Always there to meet and greet you. Let's go do it. Um, he made it fun to go train. If Coot was a human athlete, what sport would he play and why? He'd be Tom Brady. Um, Coot, in a little ways, was extremely talented, but he was an overachiever but he'd work at it. 
If you have to describe yourself in one word, what would it be? Hmm. Arrogant. <laughs> Arrogant or confident? Those are two different things. You, you, yes, they are. Confidence, uh, arrogance. Whew. You got to believe that you're the best. Deep down, even though you're not, and I'm not, but you got to believe you are, and you got to believe what you're standing beside. You've got to have confidence that, that when you leave the holding blind and you walk up there in the last series of crown championship and you have to destroy this thing, you have to believe that this is your moment. You have to do what it takes to get it done. And you, you've, got, you've got to have that confidence and that arrogance that, that you cannot be beat. You can't be touched. You're going to get beat and you're going to get pounded on. You're going to lose more than you win, but you, you've got to fight. Got to fight. If you weren't a professional dog trainer and handler, what other profession would you like to attempt? I'd have been a professional golfer. Are you any good at golf? In 2000, early 2000s, I had a decision to make. Play professional golf or go dog train. Two very different things. Now, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> Completely different. But it's a mental game. Mental. And it's you versus the field. Exactly. Yeah, I could drive a golf ball 300 yards. Now, I can't drive it 30 yards now, but um, yes, the mental game, that's probably the deal is the mental game. Most of them golfers are all equally talented. It's who's mentally tough that day. Yeah, well, that kind of goes back to what you said a minute ago when you were saying about having the confidence to win in this game. I mean, look at the the greatest golfers of all time, Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer. Yep. In their prime, they didn't think they could be beat. So, makes sense. That, that's that's what made them special, right? You couldn't – yes, and all together at one time and error, that would have been unbelievable shootouts. You know, but they, they believed they couldn't be beat, and they, and they weren't going to get beat. And everybody else knew they couldn't beat them. Awesome. Well, Lyle, thank you, man. Really appreciate your time. I know everybody's going to love listening to this. It's been a great 45 minutes with you. I know it's about lunchtime where you are, so I'm going to let you go uh, get a sandwich, and then uh, I guess maybe you'll be training in the afternoon. But, uh, man, really appreciate your time here. Well, thank you, David. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we'll be back with another episode of Behind the Line soon. But uh, thank you for listening to this one here with Lyle Steinman. And uh, as I said, uh, look out for our next episode as well. 